Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19 this morning. The end of the chapter will tie into the next chapter. While you're making your way to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 19, in chapter 3 of this letter, Peter tells us why he has been writing in the first place, why he's writing to the churches. He tells us why he wrote the first and the second <clears throat> letters there. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. Kind of sounds like collections, huh? This is, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by the Lord Jesus and Savior, well, it's our Lord and Savior, through your apostles. And so Peter desires, first of all, that the church would be stimulated to wholesome thinking. That's an apostle's, really, his, his, his heart's desire. If, if he were here this morning, uh, he would be saying, listen, I'm writing to you, I'm preaching you to teach you not only that you would, be, would know the Lord, but that your mind would be shaped accordingly. How you live, how you act, what you believe, everything would be shaped accordingly. You'd have wholesome thinking. That word wholesome is translated uh, sincere in some of your Bibles. You'd have sincere, a sincere mind. A, meaning a pure mind. The idea is that you take something and you examine it against the light of the sun. Um, the other day, I'm confessing, I think I, yeah, I went to and bought a donut. And they took my dollar and they, or $20, and they, they lifted it up against the light. And I'm like, it's a donut, you know? But anyways, <laughs> $20 against the light. What were they doing? They're checking the authenticity of, of that currency. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. Listen, when your faith is put up against the light of the truth, either on the day of judgment, on the day that it all comes down, I want you to be found to be sincere. That's the ultimate sincerity. But that begins now. And that's what he is, is seeking. He desires, first of all, the church would be stimulated to wholesome thinking. And so Peter says, I'm writing so that their minds concerning their faith in Christ would be found pure. And as I mentioned over the last two weeks, the enemy had been attacking the church, and the way that the enemy attacked the church first was just straight through persecution, flat out a Christ-rejecting culture around them, hating Christians and their light within that culture, and they just flat out in this situation under Nero just killed them. Well, that wasn't totally working. The flat-out persecution often strengthens the church. And so how else is the enemy going to attack the church? He's going to do it from the inside. And he's going to do it through compromising what they actually believe. And so he's going to start to send false teachers within the church. And that is really what Second Peter addresses, the importance of us knowing the truth from the counterfeit. Amen? And so... Satan has modified his strategy from, book one, from, from the first letter to the second letter, and he's trying to attack from within. And so the way that Peter seeks to have them have a pure understanding of the Lord is by reminding them of two things he says in, in verse 2 of chapter 3. And no, this is not extra credit because I'm going to teach it again when I get there. In, in, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Peter says, I want you to recall... 
Notice he's using the words recall. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter's saying that the way that you will have a sincere and pure understanding concerning Jesus is by remembering what the prophets said about Christ and by remembering what Christ said through the apostles. He's pointing them back to the Word. And if you recall and remember the truth, Peter's saying to them, by the Lord, through the prophets, you'd be guarded against the false teaching that's coming your way that's going to seek to undermine, to shipwreck your faith. And so Peter says, back to where we are today, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always remember these things. This is the heart of Peter the apostle as he is facing the end of his life that the church would be established and reminded of what is true and what is not. Peter was deeply concerned that the church would be reminded of the truth that they were establishing before he went on. As many of you know, the persecution that the church was facing under Nero would shortly take place. A little over 30 years earlier from when Peter is writing this, back in John chapter 21, so 30 years just transpired from the time that Jesus ascended until Peter's writing this. Right after Jesus commissioned Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to feed his sheep, the very next verse in John 21, verse 18, as Peter and Jesus are gathered on the shore, remember Peter just jumped off the boat because he recognized it was the Lord. He's sitting there around the fire. They're eating some fish, and, and Jesus and Peter are having a one-on-one talk. They're gathered together shore, and, and just after they got the whole feed my sheep conversation done, the very next verse, verse 18. Very I truly, I tell you, Peter, when you are, were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then verse 19 is key. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus indicated that Peter, sometime in the future when he was old, would be captured, he'd be led away, and his hands would be stretched out and nailed to a cross just like Jesus. And then Peter, and then Jesus turns to Peter and says, now follow me. How many of you would go, "Uh, nope, (laughs) not following you to that place? Jesus, from the day he called Peter, it's so interesting, on the very first day, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? And he did. He was faithful. He took that fisherman, and we've seen the amazing change in Peter's life and all the things. I mean, Peter was empowered to do things when Peter was still the Peter that we know and kind of laugh at and, you know, kind of relate with, right? I mean, he cast out demons. He walked on water. He raised the dead eventually, and just amazing things. As he followed Jesus, he preached to a group, and thousands were saved at one time. 
I mean, massive works of God happened through this fisherman, this nobody from the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus just walked up to one day and said, follow me. All of our lives have been affected by this man. But ultimately, Jesus led Peter to where, not only where he went and where he was, he led him to the cross. That's where Peter was destined. But not only to the cross, but to glory. That's the thing. Die now and live later. Live now, die later. That's the message of the kingdom. Deny yourself today. Pick up your cross and follow me. Eternal life. Live your life for today. You face the second death. Church tradition says that Peter, you know this, was martyred under Nero. As Peter was going to be executed by crucifixion, Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way the Lord was. You can read these things in various places, but John Fox's Book of Martyrs, written in the 1500s, is pretty fascinating. So Peter was crucified, glorifying Jesus in his death. At one time, Peter said he would die, but when it came down to it, he ran. 30 years later, 33 or 34 years later, Peter loved Jesus so much that he followed him to the cross. Very powerful. The sanctifying work of God in our lives. There's hope for us, amen? <laughs> and so here's, here Peter is 30-something years later from that conversation on the shore of Galilee, and he's an old man. He's in Rome. He's one of the last apostles. He's about to die. He is, he has a, his, his pressing desire is that the church would be reminded of the truth. When it all comes down to it, when, when, when his life is on the line, you find out what he truly cares about and what he's made. Being a pastor, it's interesting. I'm around people who die, and you're able to be by their bedside, and you find out truly what people are thinking and what a life is about in those last moments, and all the fears and hopes, and everything pops up, and then it's just kind of like a pressure cooker that leads down to, to, to just refining moments in people's lives, and, and a lot is revealed in that time, and here Peter is knowing that he's going to face certain death, and what is his greatest concern? just wants to do what the Lord called him to do, to make sure that we were established in the truth. And by God's grace, Peter wasn't even thinking about us probably, even though he probably knew John 17 when Jesus prayed for those who would believe after. But he was concerned about the churches he knew, the people he knew, the congregations like this that were gathered all over that place. And he was just saying, I, I want to make sure that after I'm gone, that you don't get plucked off by the wolves. The legacy that Peter was concerned with was refreshing their memory. That's what he wanted, reminding them of the truth. And so verse 12, Peter says, so I will always remind you of these things, 
even though you, you know them and you are firmly established in the truth that you now have. And that's the legacy that Peter was concerned with, causing them to remember everything that the Lord had entrusted to Peter, he entrusted to them, and he was a proclaimer of the truth. Peter was not into sensationalism. That's just not how he, um, he operated. He wasn't trying to hype up the church. I mean, God's power was actually manifested in Peter. There was no hyping involved. I mean, it was real, the real deal. He was an apostle. But he wasn't trying to entertain the church with the latest greatest. You know what I mean? Uh, Peter is simply reminding the church of old truth. Isn't he? He's reminding them of old truth. He's reminding them of what God had already said. He is not reinventing himself. He's not reinventing the church. He is just simply, he's not very entertaining. He is just feeding the sheep what the sheep need. And so Peter knows that there will be guys coming in with fresh visions from God and will come in with cleverly crafted stories. But Peter, faithful to the Lord, is feeding them old truths. As he does, the Holy Spirit then illuminates those truths in the hearts of his people and makes it fresh and new in their hearts. It's the difference between cotton candy and, like, real food. And so Peter is reminding them, he says, of these things, right? The things that he's been communicating. Let me, let me quickly repeat those things. First off, the total sufficiency of Jesus' saving work. We need to be reminded of, of Jesus' total sufficiency in saving us. So, he says that through his righteousness, we have received a precious faith. I'm paraphrasing, I'm kind of quoting out from the first chapter, that through knowing him, we have abundant grace and peace with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All the works of the Lord. God has, through his righteousness, through his righteous son, has given us a precious faith. And through faith in Christ, we receive peace with God grace and peace, in abundance, multiplied be to you. Secondly, the total sufficiency of Jesus to not only save us, but to empower us to live that new life. And this is where we struggle. We go, yes, Jesus, I love you. And then we try to work out our salvation by our own strength. Instead of relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us. And yes, it does require denying yourself, but it is Him working in and through you. And that's a mystery that Paul tried to work, works out for us in Romans 7 and 8. Life by the Spirit. But the total sufficiency in Jesus empowering you, empowering me to live godly lives. Think of the areas in your life today that you go, gosh, I'm just powerless in this. We've all got them. Well, it's Peter's saying that it is his divine nature that gives us everything we need for life and godliness, that the source that you're needing and looking for is not in a program, it's not, in a, not that programs aren't good and all that type of stuff, but it's not in, in, in the latest and greatest and whatever it is, the new angle and stuff, it is in the person. It is in Him. It is in Jesus Christ. That is the power to live a godly life. And hopefully, whatever program or thing you're part of, 
is proclaiming Christ and pointing you to Him and, and how He in it is the total thing that you need for life and godliness. He says also, he says, that is because of Jesus' glory and goodness that we have received great and precious promises to live a godly life. He's given this promises to believe in, and that is because of His great and precious promises that we, by faith in those promises, given by the Father and the Son to the prophets and the apostles, through the promises we now partake in the divine nature. Not only does God save us as a church, He gives us promises for us as His kids. And as we believe in what He says, we partake in His divine nature. Isn't that crazy? So there's a promise for righteousness, and as we believe those promises, when we conform our lives to it, as our minds think, as we obey the Lord in these areas, He empowers us to be what we weren't, to be more like Christ. That doesn't just magically happen. It's through trusting in what He says and and conforming our lives to His Word. And so those great and precious promises he gives us, helps us, part, it, we participate in the divine nature. We become more like Christ. We become Christ-like by faith. Having escaped the corruption of the world through evil desires. And this is because the total sufficiency of Christ for a godly life that we now grow in our faith. And this he says, now you want to know what it looks like when Christ actually does something in your life, when, when you're following him, when you're being his disciple. He says, adding to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge and to knowledge, self-control and self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness and to godliness, brotherly love and to brotherly love, love. That's what a Christian looks like. We're changing to be more like Christ. And the ultimate thing that, that comes through in us is that agape love. That love that is of the will, a selfless will towards one another, towards God first, towards one another. It's beautiful. For God so agape you and me that He gave His own Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Those are the promises of God. And so Peter says, I'm reminding you of this, of all this stuff, even though you know them and are firmly established. And how many of you have been here before I was here? Yeah, a lot of you, right? So, you know, you got like probably 20% there. It's interesting. You've been here several years more than me. But as I've been here, you, you've watched me teach the Scriptures for almost nine years now. And by now, you have come to the deep realization that it's the same message. And they all said, Amen. <laughs> I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm not giving you any deep, profound revelation from the throne room of God that you know, from Matt's conjuring. I didn't have a vision. I don't, you know, I didn't eat a pizza and the next day tell you, you know, this is what's happening. You're hearing old truth. Amen? Old truth. Just made fresh in your hearts by grace, by the Holy Spirit, hopefully. Amen? And if you've been a Christian in church, you know, that reminds you of these things, 
then you know the prophecies concerning Jesus. You know the work he came to accomplish. You, you have an accurate knowledge of the truth concerning sin and repentance and faith alone and justification, sanctification, glorification, and of great grace and eschatology, and you can get into all these types. Of, you might not know the actual terms and the words, but you, you know the truth. You're established in Him. You've been around Him. You know Him. You love Him. You know when you hear something that's off that's not of Him. You're established in those things. Amen. You've been here for a while. You possess it. You know it. And so what's my role as a pastor? What was Peter's role? To, to tell you something new, to make something up? No. To be an instrument of the Lord, to remind you of the truth, to remind you of these things. And that's the word that Peter keeps using. He's just reminding you of what you already know. Peter's concerned that as soon as he dies, the truth that was committed to him, that he entrusted to them, that it would be perverted and wrapped up by false teachers because the church couldn't be overcome by the teeth of the lion. But Satan is crafty. And he comes in in different ways. And so Peter is greatly concerned that what was committed to them, what they knew, would start to be undermined and eroded away. Paul had the same concern in Acts 20, 25-31. Paul is about to leave the church in Ephesus for the last time. He's going to get arrested in Jerusalem shortly. He's with the, el- the Ephesian elders. He's on the shore. And it's this big emotional scene. It's beautiful. If you, don't, if you have time later, read it. But there it is in Acts 20, 25-31. Pastor Arthur taught on it some time ago. It says, Now I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Why? Because for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. He gave them all that God had given him, right? According to the scriptures. Keep watch over yourselves. He's speaking to the elders. And, and, and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, reminding the elders whose church it is. It's not up to you to do all these things. You do what he says. He's, he's the chief shepherd. You are the under shepherds. Amen. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. You don't need to <clears throat> make sure like at Christmas you've got angels flying in and sheep and all this stuff. I mean, whatever, you can do that. But I mean, is the core essence of the church, are they getting fed? Are you guarding and protecting and giving? Amen? So he says in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own numbers, men will rise up and distort the truth Why? In order to draw disciples after them. And that's what Satan does. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And so Paul, along with Peter, had a great concern for the church. This is what the apostles were concerned with. That we would be 
reminded and know, and know the truth. And so the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the real deal. Amen? You know a counterfeit because you know the truth so well. When you see the counterfeit, it just instantly registers. That comes by discernment. That comes by use, by knowing the real thing. So Peter says again in verse 13, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Verse 15, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. It's interesting, back in... in, um, Verse, back in verses, the verses before, Peter urges the church to make every effort to add virtues to their faith, right? And then again in verse 10, <clears throat> he says to make every effort to confirm their calling and election, right? He's telling the church, make every effort to add to these things. Make every effort to make sure that you're in the faith. In other words, that your faith is actually producing what Christ redeemed you for, And Peter uses that same word for diligence on himself. He says, now I'm going to make every effort. You are all supposed to do those things, and Peter knows what he's called to. I will be diligent. I will make every effort so that the sheep will have the knowledge of Christ that was given to me. And when I'm gone and the truth is tested by false teachers, their faith Your faith, my faith, will be tested to be found sincere and pure. Again, Paul, with that same urgency, Paul has the same heart. Just before Paul would be martyred, he says to young pastor Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, he says to him in 2 Timothy 8, verse 15, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, from which I am now suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the church, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then he goes, goes, here's a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he still remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. And Paul says in verse 14 to Timothy, keep reminding God's people of these things. Same thing. These guys were obsessed with these things. Timothy, warn them. And this is the drive of the Apostles' Church, to deliver to us and to remind us what the Lord Jesus committed to them the life-giving gospel that people who are enemies by nature, by the way, are enemies with God, awaiting His judgment, can have peace with God through Jesus Christ alone by turning from our sinful rebellion and turning to trust in Jesus to save us alone. And by believing that He rose again, we now participate in His life. We now share in His life that Jesus died and he rose again, the gospel. 
Because he died, I'm forgiven. Because he rose, I now have life. What part did I do? I believed. <laughs> That's the work. To believe upon the one that God sent. Any other thing is, is not the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. Now it's discipleship. Now the Holy Spirit desires that we become like Christ. And that is his work for Christians. And so Peter's reminding them and of us of the gospel and the preciousness concerning Christ. Now, real quickly, verse 16, he starts explaining why and how they received this message. Many people were starting to challenge Peter. He was starting to challenge the apostles, challenging Paul on all this stuff. And he starts to differentiate himself between, to, between the other false teachers because that's where he's going in chapter 2. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. How much of Christian, and I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm prone to this too, okay? I'm not sitting here just chucking stuff at everybody else, but how much, if you just listen to Christian teachers across the board, how much of it is sensationalism? How much of it is like just major stories about all this crazy stuff? It's, it's a lot. There's a lot of it out there. So Peter says, here's an apostle, he says, listen, I wasn't making stuff up. I was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty, his glory. I was there. And he's going to, you're going to, in instant your mind, you're like, okay, well, how do I believe that? And that's the point he's going to go to next. But Peter is an apostle. He's an eyewitness of the resurrection. If you want, you know, how, how many of you have been to San Marcos, California? One person. Oh, those two, three. Okay, cool. So I start describing San Marcos, California to you, and I start describing the intricacies of it and what it was like and all that kind of stuff. I'm an eyewitness of my hometown. I know what it's like. You start describing, like, wherever you all been in Washington, I, and I, I'll have to trust you, but as I see your witness and the witnesses of several people talking about that thing, I start to understand that you're triangulating on the truth. That's what the Gospels do. That's what the New Testament does. It triangulates on the truth from the perspective of several people who were eyewitnesses. Peter was an eyewitness of His majesty and glory. He's not even talking about just seeing Christ. He's talking about seeing Christ in a specific instance in His glory, and he's talking about the transfiguration. That's where he's going here. It was just Peter, James, and John who would be, the church would be handed over to him. And the time that Peter is writing some of this some of the other apostles had already started to die. James, the brother of John, being the first, and ironically, John would be the last. And it's interesting, my grandfather is 97, and he's a World War II veteran. And several years ago, I, I took the time to ask him about what it was like, how he entered the service, what it was like to be in the Navy. He was on uh, an oil tanker or something like that up in Alaska when Pearl Harbor hit. And that's when he had this come to Jesus moment, literally. He came to Jesus, just kind of Holy Spirit. You know, he was an orphan from Kentucky and all this type of stuff and, and got into the Navy young and, and then boom, war broke out. 
serious war. And he just, he straightened his heart out, started following the Lord, but I started asking him, you know, what it was like to be in the bottom of a ship shoveling coal into that thing with all, you know, in the middle of a fleet and war going on and just talking about the terror and the, the scariness of it all and all, you know, just in, in just the firsthand experience that only a firsthand experienced person would be able to tell you. That generation is, is, is going away. There are not many of them left. Did it really happen? It's interesting how we have a generation of people who don't believe that a lot of things happened that really happened. Like the Holocaust, like what's going on? This is what Peter's concerned with. Here Peter, he was with Christ from the beginning. Peter, now an old man, testifies to the church. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. And, and Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and he's, he's referring uh, that Peter, James, and John were all witnesses of this one event, and he, speaks, and he speaks about it in verse 17. He, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him, from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and when, when we were with him on that sacred mountain. So Peter's referring here to that transfiguration, recorded in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is where Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses of His glory, and, the, and we saw that Jesus receiving honor and glory from the Father. And that word honor means exalted status, and glory means uh, splendor, radiant splendor. And the idea is he's trying to relay the light that Jesus was, was, was shining, the radiant light that was coming from Christ. And it, it's like the brightness describing like the sun in all its brilliance. And a week just before that event happened, Jesus was teaching about the Son of Man coming into His Father's glory with His angels. And He said a week before to the disciples in verse 28 of Matthew, I'm sorry, yeah, and of Matthew 16, Jesus says to the disciples, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they will see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's like, Okay, so what does that mean? That Jesus is going to come back before the apostles die? No, that's not what happened. He's saying, you're going to see me in all my glory and all my splendor in my kingdom. You're going to have a picture, a revelation of what's going on. And this is what Peter is relaying. And that's what they saw. Jesus glorify, radiating in all his majesty. And they also heard the Father giving Jesus honor and glory, saying, this is my son whom I love and while I'm well pleased. And Jesus says, we saw Jesus glorified. We heard the majestic, uh, majestic glory, another name for God, giving the Son honor and glory. This, this was all happening before us. We were there on the sacred mountain. And so Peter was an eyewitness of the glorified Christ. But not only that, verse 19, and here's Peter's point, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. He's saying, listen, my story is absolutely fantastic and it is true. But we have something even more completely reliable. That's where he's going. What is it? The prophetic message. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the dawn, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Man, that's awesome. Fisherman thinking stuff. Love that. 
So the apostles, they were eyewitnesses of Christ's glory there, but Peter says the prophetic message is completely reliable. There's going to be people coming to you to tell you tons of stories. Mine are true, but how are you going to delineate between what is true and what is false? The prophetic message, you've got to pay attention to it. That word message is logos, which is the word for word. Peter says, the word is completely reliable. And now instantly in your mind going, oh, I was hoping you'd say something new. Right? You were looking for something new. How many of you were waiting and now you're disappointed that I said it's the word? Totally, that guy, he's honest. Me too. I was going to go, oh, this is going to be awesome. Nope, old truth. Isn't that weird? And so the prophets of the Old Testament were the ones who spoke these things concerning Christ far before the apostles were eyewitnesses, the prophetic word. When God spoke through the prophets concerning Jesus, it came to pass, and guess who witnessed it come to pass? Not only all of Israel, but specifically the apostles. They saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They saw these things fulfilled in front of their eyes. And God chose them from among all the witnesses to be his representatives. The apostles were witnesses. And the apostles not only witnessed the fulfillment of the prophetic word, they themselves received revelation from Christ. And so their account and their words were written down as scripture, as part of the whole deal. And so Peter says that, we do well to pay attention to it, to the prophetic word, to the word of God, which we now have compiled and it's sitting in your laps today or on your phones or not at all for some reason. The word of God is totally reliable, he says. What it said came to pass and it will come to pass. Pay attention to it as a light shining in darkness. He's, he's thinking back to David, church. David said of the impact of the word of God on his life in Psalm 119.105, what did he say? He said, the word, your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet. It's a light unto my path. Have you ever been in a dark darkness that you cannot find your way out of? I've been a rookie camper. Anybody else decide to go to the bathroom at night? And where am I going? And you're just tripping over everything in the world. And, you know, you forgot to bring your flashlight and you're trying to do your phone or whatever. And that just ain't cutting it because the darkness is so dark. Have you ever been in a darkness and then a light in a distance? shines. And, and all the darkness is absolutely all around you. It is there. It is encompassing your world. But when that light turns on, where do your eyes fixate? On the light. And that's the imagery that Peter is using. He's saying, church, you're in a shroud of darkness. This world is dark. But I've given you a light. <coughs> Fix your eyes on the light. The Word of God, 
which testifies. We got to go a step further because Jesus went a step further. The Word of God speaks not of the Word of God, but of the Word of God. <laughs> the Son of God. It testifies of Him. Amen? He is the light that came into the world. He is our light. He is our life. David understood that he was walking in darkness but for God's word in his life. And Peter says, pay attention to it as light in a dark place. Fix your eyes on it. For how long? Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Until the day dawns. What does that mean? Until it's no longer dark. What a beautiful description of the return of the Lord. And Jesus was just, Peter was there just in, in a world of darkness, about ready to die. He's in Rome. The enemy's attacking. It's just, it's just warfare. It's thick. It's ugly. And the odds are totally against. And he keeps reminding of the truth. Keep looking at Christ. Keep looking at Christ. Keep your eyes on him. He's totally sufficient for everything you need. He gave you salvation. He'll get you through it. He'll strengthen you to be a Christian. No matter what comes your way, false teaching, the teeth of a lion, he will, he will bring it. Keep looking at Christ. He's given you his word. Keep your eyes on the truth. Don't let anybody mess with that, tamper with that, take that away. How long? Until he returns. Until you see him face to face. Keep your eyes and hearts fixed upon him, upon his word, until your faith becomes sight. The morning star refers to Christ, whose coming will end the dark night of sin and usher in the dawn of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the eternal Son of God. Amen? So what's the message this morning? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Old truth. May the Holy Spirit illuminate it in your heart this morning. Amen? Lord God, we thank you. We just thank you for all that you've accomplished, all that you're calling us to in Christ Jesus. Lord, there are some here this morning that have never seen the light, that have never heard the message of the gospel, and their hearts are weighed down by sin, and they can't get out. Here this morning, if that's you, that Jesus Christ has come to save you. He died in your place to pay your price, that you would have peace with God by believing fully in him. And by giving your heart to him fully and making him Lord and believing that he rose again, just surrendering your life to him, he will give you his life. Why? Because of his glory and goodness. Call out to him. And he will not deny you. He's good. And he longs to gather the broken, the lost, the sinner, the bruised into his, into his home and to clothe them in righteousness and to fill them with his love and to give them his eternal life, not only now, 
but in the ages to come, his grace upon grace, it's yours now in Christ. So Lord, we just thank you for the gospel. We hold true to it. And until that day, Father, may we not be ineffective and unfruitful, unproductive because we have disobeyed and just denied you and all that you've done for us. Lord, work in us, God, and may our works not be for salvation, but may we actually operate (laughs) in the good works that the faith should produce. So, Lord, add to this church, add to our faith goodness. Lord, add all these virtues, Lord, into our goodness, the knowledge of you, and self-control, and perseverance, and godliness, and brotherly love, and ultimately love, Lord. Grow us up in you, that you would walk among this church and be pleased, not by all the sensationalism, Lord, but by the fruit of the character of Christ in your sons and daughters. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Bless us today. We need you like the deer panteth for the water. Praise you and glorify you today. In the name of Jesus, amen.